Amen. So we have been talking, uh, this, this entire semester we'll be talking about eschatology, which is what? Study of the eschatos, study of the end, the final, the last things. And, uh, and so we've been talking about eschatology the past couple of weeks. We've talked about the book of Revelation. We did an introduction to the book of Revelation. We talked about the symbolism and some of the symbols that you see in the book of Revelation. And then this week, what we want to talk about is uh, Antichrist. And you'll notice that might be plural. Antichrist or Christ's and enemies of the kingdom. Raise your hand if you are really excited to learn about the Antichrist. Raise your hand if you're kind of scared to learn about the Antichrist. Raise your hand if you're indifferent. Raise your hand if you just, your arm works. All right, I want to see some people in the back, youth do not. Uh, okay, so this is, a, this is a fascinating subject because if you look throughout the past 2,000 years of church history, this is one of those subjects where you will not find consensus. And, uh, and so uh, church fathers, theologians uh, throughout church history are kind of all over uh, the place. I thought it'd be fun just to start with uh, some different historical figures that uh, have been called the quote-unquote Antichrist. Uh, the first one uh, is the Pope uh, in particular or the papacy in general. This was uh, a particular sort of uh, a, a desire of the, the reformers. And, uh, and so listen to what Luther said. The papacy is indeed nothing but the kingdom of Babylon and of the true Antichrist. John Calvin said Daniel and Paul had predicted that Antichrist would sit in the temple of God, the head of that cursed and abominable kingdom in the Western church we affirm to be the Pope. What's interesting is that the Catholics heard this and then they responded and they said, who's the Antichrist? Yeah, Martin Luther or John Calvin or whatever it might be. So the reformers called the Pope the Antichrist, the Pope called the uh, reformers the Antichrist that got into this big sort of war of uh, words. Uh, second one, Nikolai Carpathia. Who's that? Yeah, from the Left Behind uh, series, all right? And so this is a uh, Romanian who uh, ascends to something like the European Union, and, uh, and then he makes this peace treaty, the seven-year peace treaty with, uh, uh, with Israel, and then he goes in the temple, and surprise, I'm actually the Antichrist, and he reveals himself, and, uh, and so that's Nikolai Carpathia. If you were influenced by the Left Behind books, you know who that is. Uh, next one, Hitler. And uh, he certainly did some anti-Christian things for sure. Uh, the next one, Caesar Nero. We've talked about him quite a bit over the past couple of weeks. We will continue to talk about him. Uh, he was the, uh, the emperor in, uh, the, uh, when a lot of the, the New Testament epistles were being written. Uh, Napoleon, especially for those who are fans of Nostradamus and his predictions and that kind of stuff, he predicted that Napoleon was the Antichrist. Uh, and then you have this series of either the Russian president or the American president. So when it comes to the Russian president, you've had people that say that Stalin or Lenin or Gorbachev or Putin or whoever it might be, whoever's kind of the, uh, the reigning uh, Russian um, uh, monarch or uh, president or whatever it might be at that particular time. Uh, and then the American president, just about every U.S. president from FDR on has had uh, someone who has called them the, uh, the Antichrist. And so... That is kind of a survey of history. You can see just kind of anybody that you don't like, you just call the Antichrist. And, uh, and so maybe if you don't like a sermon that I do or something, like you call me the Antichrist or whatever it might be. But that's kind of how just we've done it in uh, the past 2,000 years of church history. What's really fascinating, though, 
is today, if you were to do a survey of all of the uh, American evangelicals, uh, anyone who calls themselves an evangelical here in uh, America, and you were to ask them what they believe about the Antichrist, they would have this kind of popular conception. And what's interesting is that popular view, the majority popular view today, is actually very different than the majority scholarly opinion on the Antichrist, both today and throughout history. And so we're really at an interesting sort of um, uh, watershed moment in history when the vast majority of Christians actually believe something that the vast majority of Christians throughout time have not believed, and the vast majority of, Christ, uh, of, of Christian scholars today don't believe uh, as well. And so popular opinion today very much has been affected by dispensational theology. We've talked about that uh, a number of times before. This is a late 19th century theological development that applies a very wooden, literal hermeneutic to eschatology. Uh, and, and that's marked, as it relates to eschatology, marked by a very futuristic reading of Revelation. Everything that takes place in Revelation takes place in the future in, uh, in dispensational uh, theology. And, uh, and so here's just kind of a, a, an example of that. Dave Hunt and Global Peace and the Rise of Antichrist wrote this. Somewhere at this very moment on planet Earth, the Antichrist is almost certainly alive, biding his time, awaiting his cue. Banal sensationalism, far from it. That likelihood is based upon a sober evaluation of current events in relation to Bible prophecy. Already a mature man, he is probably active in politics perhaps even an admired world leader whose name is almost daily on everyone's lips. All right, so that's Dave Hunt. That was actually written about 1990. So if this guy was already a mature man, then uh, he is uh, still a mature man at this point. Um, so the reasons that this dispensational theology are, is so popular today, in fact, it's the, uh, again, the the majority popular opinion, if you were to just poll the average American Christian, but it's not the, uh, the majority opinion of scholars, of the academics uh, of, uh, of Christianity or whatever it might be. I'm not talking about liberal scholars, uh, I'm talking about conservative uh, scholars. So the reasons that dispensational theology is so popular today, in no particular order, the first one is the influence of a book in, uh, in the 70s, I don't remember the exact year, but it was called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Anyone ever read that? So Hal Lindsey is a, uh, a student from my alma mater, uh, DTS, which is kind of a bastion of dispensational theology. Um, and, uh, and so this book had 35 million copies sold which is quite a bit for a, uh, a Christian book, especially in the 70s. It had a primetime television special watched by 17 million people, voiced by Orson Welles, so the guy who did Citizen Kane and all that. And, uh, and so according to that view, the Antichrist would come in the 70s, 1970s. The rapture would occur in the 1980s, which is kind of an uh-oh because it didn't happen. And then every three years, he's still alive, uh, every three years he kind of adjusts it and pushes back the date and says the Antichrist is coming in another five years, which means he can write another book, and then that comes out, and write another one, and so forth. So that's one of the main reasons that dispensational theology is so uh, uh, popular, because of the influence of the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Another one, the Schofield and Ryrie Study Bibles. Who here had a Schofield or a Ryrie Study Bibles? 
Well, all of those study notes are dispensational. And, uh, and so uh, with whatever study Bible you have, you have to recognize that there is a difference between the inspired Word of God and then the, uh, the commentary that is below that. Uh, but what happened oftentimes uh, was uh, whenever it comes to Schofield or Ryrie study Bibles, people kind of took that as gospel. That is the way to read Scripture according to um, a number of people. Another influence of why dispensationalism is so popular are the left-behind books. So 80 million books sold, all uh, told, and, uh, and a couple of uh, movies starring Kirk Cameron. So, uh, And then lastly, uh, and I think this is a, a very good thing. So uh, we sometimes make fun of dispensational uh, theology, um, but dispensational theology did historically was one of the only ways of reading Scripture that actually held the line on uh, inerrancy and authority. So whereas the Southern Baptists, Presbyterians, all of these kinds of uh, denominations went through a period where there was uh, this move towards liberalism, which is why there was a conservative resurgence in the SBC and uh, why there's now a split between the Presbyterian Church in America and, uh, and so forth. And so uh, dispensational theology never went through that. There was never really a liberal tendency within dispensational theology. And so for a, a period of time, for maybe two decades or so, dispensationals were really the only ones that were really crying out the, the anthem of the inerrancy, the inspiration, the authority of, uh, of Scripture. And so for a lot of times, it kind of became a shibboleth for understanding whether someone uh, was liberal or not. And, uh, and so that's actually a, a very positive thing about dispensational theology, um, although I don't uh, agree with that particular way of, of approaching Scripture. So, but for all of these reasons... That is the reason that most evangelicals today think not only of the Antichrist in particular, but eschatology in general through very dispensational sort of lenses. And one of the things that we've said is, if that is the way that you approach uh, Scripture, we love you. You're welcome to stay here. You're welcome to worship here, all that kind of stuff. We might step on your toes a little bit as we're preaching through uh, or teaching through eschatology. That is not our intent. Our intent is not to hurt you, to insult you, to offend you, whatever it might be. Our love language is making jokes as uh, evidenced by the fact that we always make fun of each other. And, uh, and so please don't be offended. Please don't be annoyed. If you want to talk about these things, please uh, let us know. The majority of scriptures, though, I'm sorry, the majority of scholars throughout history have not held this dispensational uh, sort of way uh, of, uh, of viewing eschatology or the Antichrist. doesn't mean that the, the, the dispensationals are necessarily wrong, but it should lead us to some degree of humility. When the majority popular opinion is not the same as the majority of Christians throughout time, nor the majority of uh, scholars today that should cause us some level of concern. So that's just a little bit of an introduction to the subject to help us kind of orient ourselves uh, appropriately. Let me talk about some of the questions that we want to answer today. The first one being, is there only one Antichrist or are there many Antichrists? The second one, is the Antichrist a person? Is it an impersonal power or is it an institution? Third, is the Antichrist the same as the man of lawlessness? And is that the same as the beast? If you don't know who those are referring to, we'll talk about that. Next, who or what is the Antichrist and how are we expected to recognize him or it? And then last, has he already come? Does he come all the time or is he still to come? And uh, so those are some of the questions that we're going to answer. We're going to do so by talking about six things to know about the Antichrist. And I chose six because that's a very important 
Number six is one short of perfection, the number of a man. So that's what we chose. Interestingly, number one, the word antichrist only appears in the Johannine epistles and not in Revelation. So if, uh, if you're not a scholar and uh, you're not really familiar with this and someone were to just simply say, where do you find the antichrist? You would probably say in the book of Revelation. That's where we think all eschatology appears in, uh, in Revelation. But the, the word antichrist actually doesn't appear in Revelation at all. And, uh, and so passages explicitly referencing the word antichrist or antichrist plural, all of those are found in 1 John or 2 John. You see those there in your notes. Children, 1 John 2.18, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4, 2 through 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So that's it. Those are the only explicit references to the Antichrist. Not in Paul's letters, not in Revelation. They mention other terms that seem to be related to the Antichrist, and we'll talk about those, but those are the only four passages in the entire New Testament, in the entire Bible, that explicitly mention an Antichrist. Now, what does the word Antichrist mean? What does the prefix anti mean? It means against, or it also means one who is in the place of. So it can be used as against or in the place uh, of. The primary meaning, as it's used in 1 John, is just simply one who is against. The Antichrist is one who is against. But as we'll see, whenever we talk about uh, what seems to be a similar sort of image in Paul's writings and in the book of Revelation, there also seems to be a nuance to this Antichrist figure that he's not only against Christ, but he actually exalts himself in the place of Christ. Uh, Christ. But in, in John's usage, in 1 John, that second uh, uh, sort of nuance is not really uh, prevalent. The main sort of idea in 1 John is just simply that it is anything is, that is against Christ is the Antichrist. And so, in light of that, number two, in some sense, there are many Antichrists. 1 John 2.18, if you don't uh, uh, believe me, just simply read this passage. It's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So who is the Antichrist according to 1 John? Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 2.22. According to 1 John 2.23, anyone who denies the Father and the Son would be the Antichrist. 1 John 4.3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus Second John uh, 7, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So historically speaking, we could say that the Gnostics, the, the, the heresy of Gnosticism, the Docetics, the heresy of uh, Docetism, uh, the, Ari, uh, the Arians, the heretic Arius, uh, Eutyches, who had a uh, deficient Christology, Apollinarius, who did the same, Nestorius. If those terms, Arius and Apollinarius and Nestorius and Eutyches, don't make sense, go back and listen to a teaching we did a couple of years ago on Christological heresies, and those will make sense. The Jehovah's Witnesses, 
The Mormons, all of these have a deficient Christology. All of these don't believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he is fully God and fully man. So in John's usage, in 1 John, they would be antichrist. They're against Christ. They're against the biblical depiction of who Christ is. So the term antichrist is a much larger biblical category uh, than just a particular person who comes in the future to oppose Christ. Antichrist is a classification of anyone who theologically opposes the truth of who Christ is. What's really interesting is because of this, it's really only in the 19th century, I think it's like the 1840s or something like that, uh, it's not until the 19th century that there is a proliferation of talk about the Antichrist. Before then, you see a lot of Antichrist language. You see a lot of uh, Antichrist as being a, uh, a power or a principle or an institution, like, uh, like Luther said, not merely the Pope, but the papacy in general uh, is, uh, is Antichrist. And so it's really only in the 19th century, and then again with the influence of dispensational theology, that you get this emphasis, not merely on uh, Antichrist plural, but one particular Antichrist. But there are many Antichrists, at least according to the way that John is using the term. Number three, therefore, there is a sense in which the Antichrist is already present. First John 4, 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. First John 2, 18. Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So again, we need to expand our understanding of the term, not just to refer to one future world leader or something like that, but this larger biblical category for anyone who opposes Christ. That's how John is using uh, it. We tend to think of the Antichrist as coming in the last days. One of the things that we've talked about over and over, we'll continue to come back to as we talk about eschatology, is from a biblical perspective, we're already in the last days. And we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So if someone ever says, look at all these signs, you know, look at what's happening in Russia, look at what's happening in China, therefore we know it's in the last days, you can say, yes. You know what else? 2,000 years ago we were in the last days, all right? This is the way that the, the scriptures refer to the last days is this sort of fluid concept. It's an already, but not yet. And so there's a sense in which the Antichrist is already present, and he has always been present uh, since the, uh, the first coming of Christ. Number four, John's main concern, at least in First and Second John, isn't identifying some future threat, some future world leader or something like that, but rather the present danger of false doctrine. His, his main concern isn't some future danger, but the very present danger of false teaching, of false doctrine. 1 John 2, 18, 2 John 7, I'm not going to read those again because we've read those uh, before. So again, John's concern isn't so much the future, but the present. More than we should be concerned with some future figure, some future, future uh, Nikolai Carpathia or Russian president or American president or whatever it might be. More than we should be uh, concerned about that, we should be concerned about the present reality of false teaching because false teaching is what the enemy has always used to deceive and devour the church. And it's subtle, and it's always prevalent within 
God's church. We see that even in the first century where there's already people that are opposing Paul's preaching or opposing Peter or opposing John or whatever it might be. One of the things we talked about with 1 John as we're preaching through the book is that it's not only a pastoral letter to encourage, but it's also a polemical letter. That is, it's written in particular to oppose those who are preaching and teaching false doctrine. So the way that you are to be on guard, I've heard people say that the way that they're on guard against the Antichrist is they go and they hoard gold or something like that, or they, you know, they get off the grid because they don't want to accidentally get the mark of the beast or something like that. And uh, the way that you oppose the Antichrist, biblically though, is not by doing those sorts of things. The way that you do it is by hoarding theology, by hoarding doctrine, by being so immersed in God's Word that you can't be deceived. That you can't be devoured because that is his tool for devouring. And so there are two primary ways to avoid the danger of the Antichrist or Antichrist. The number one is to engage in deep and real biblical community. You'll notice that whenever you are out in, uh, in the wild that, uh, that lions or tigers or bears, oh my, that uh, they tend to not pick off that which is in the middle of the flock, right? They tend to, to pick off the stragglers. So that's the first thing that you can do is to be involved into deep, authentic, real community. Not just come to church, but actually live life with others. Express your concerns, uh, places that you're vulnerable, whatever it might be. And the second way is to really study Scripture. Study the Bible, study church history, study doctrine, study theology. That's the reason that we do this class, because the enemy is always on the prowl and looking to deceive and devour the church. In the fourth century, the primary way that he was doing that is through all of these heretical views of God's triunity. And so in the fourth century, the church had to band together and express an orthodox view of Trinitarianism. In the fifth century, it was... Christology and hamartiology, that is the doctrine of, uh, of sin. At times, it's justification by faith. At other times, it's the authority of Scripture. Uh, at other times, it's sexuality and the family, whatever it uh, might be. But the best vaccine, what, regardless of what that particular uh, viral strain is of uh, false teaching, the best vaccine uh, to increase your immunity is uh, doctrine. There is no such thing, we've talked about this before, as being too passionate about the Bible, about theology, about doctrine, about those sorts of things. You can fail to act on that knowledge, and that's not good, but you, the solution isn't that you just learn less. And so uh, the point there, John's main concern, isn't identifying some future threat, but rather the present danger of false doctrine. So if you're not concerned about the Antichrist, because you think that's just the future You've completely missed what John is referencing there. Antichrist is a, uh, is a very present threat in regards to the false teaching that uh, the enemy would try to use to infiltrate the church and to deceive Christians. Number five, how you identify the Antichrist depends on how you interpret Revelation, even though the word Antichrist is not used in Revelation. And so go back and listen to our intro to Revelation. We talked about there are five different ways to view the timing of events that you see in Revelation. The, uh, the first one's called historicism, which sees kind of the events that you see in Revelation as occurring throughout the history of, uh, of the church, from Jesus' first coming, from his resurrection, basically, all the way through his second coming to the new heavens and the new earth. And so if that's the case, the historical view of Revelation is correct. The beast of Revelation, the Antichrist, 
uh, might refer to someone during the medieval period. Could refer to the Pope or something uh, like that. Futurism views the events as representing events still to come in the future. And so if you take that approach to Revelation, then you would say the beast refers to the future, some sort of future antichrist figure. Uh, preterism, which is Latin for that which is past, the thing that is past, uh, typically views the, uh, the book of Revelation through the lens of this has already been accomplished. In the first century with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, uh, and so it sees these events as referring to that. And so the beast there refers to the Roman emperor demanding that Christians worship him. Uh, another view is idealism, which says that symbols are always occurring throughout the history of the church. So in other words, these are not just specific people, but they're symbols to show this constant pattern over and over and over throughout uh, the church. And so if that's your view of Revelation, then the beast doesn't refer to any one particular person, but rather refers to the reality that there are always rulers who will rise up and persecute uh, Christ's church. And then the last one, and the one that, uh, that I hold, uh, is more of an eclectic sort of view. It takes elements of each and says there's elements of preterism that's helpful. There's elements of futurism that's helpful. There's elements of idealism and uh, historicism and, uh, and so forth. And so there it sees there's past, present, and future uh, sort of dimensions to the beast or the Antichrist. And we'll talk about that shortly. Most of the, the rest of our time is going to be spent in this last point. And so it's very uh, uh, heavy on the back end uh, with this point. That is that most scholars think that the Antichrist, if you want to know why we've kind of uh, moved from First John sort of understanding of Antichrist to this sort of view that it's a particular person, it's because of the influence of other texts and so most scholars think that the Antichrist uh, that we see in 1 John is connected to the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians and the beast from Revelation. Not only Revelation, but also from the book of Daniel. So you really see three streams here that kind of converge. You see the Antichrist from 1 John and 2 John. You see the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians. And you see the beast from Revelation and Daniel. You put all of those together and you kind of have a composite image of, uh, of this, uh, this figure. So start with the, uh, the Antichrist. We've talked about that quite a bit, but Antichrist in particular from First and Second uh, John, whatever we think about the way to read Revel uh, Revelation, First John's usage of the term Antichrist, as we talked about, refers to a very clear and present danger to the first century church marked by false teaching, which, which means that maybe, rather than asking who's the Antichrist, maybe a more biblically helpful way to ask the question that most of us want to know is instead asking who's the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians or who is the, uh, the beast from Revelation. That's probably more helpful in light of the way that Antichrist really doesn't just refer to one person in John's usage. It's more of a, a principle of anyone who's a false teacher. And, uh, and so you kind of have this... Maybe you have a, if this is the usage of Antichrist, and then our conception, the way that we want to understand it, referring to a particular person, this is the man of lawlessness or the beast, and this is just Antichrist. So Antichrist is a larger category, and then within that, perhaps, you have this one particular individual who is the man of lawlessness uh, or uh, the beast. And so, um, let's talk about man of Sin or man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 10. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So you see here, he is an antichrist in two different senses. He both opposes Christ, he's against Christ, but what does he also do? What's the second nuance of antichrist? Yeah, he puts himself in the place, right? He exalts himself as Christ. He views himself as a substitute for Christ. And so he's kind of antichrist in two different uh, senses, in both senses. So a couple of questions here. In order to understand what's going on in this passage, you need to answer two different questions. And again, scholars are all over the place, depending upon your particular way of viewing eschatology. Uh, And so the first question, what is this temple? You'll notice that it says that he sits down in the temple. And, uh, and so if, uh, if you're a preterist, that is that you view all of these events as already occurring in, uh, in the first century, you see this as a first century fulfillment. When the future emperor, whose name was Titus, he destroys the temple on August 30th, my birthday, August 30th, ni- uh, 70 AD, that's 1970. 1978, my actual birthday. Uh, 7080, August 30th, 19, uh, man, I'm said it again. I don't know that I've ever said August 30th before without saying 1978 after it. 7080, prob- the problem with this is that this text seems to link this event to the explicit coming of Christ. And so it would be really strange that preterists would say that he came kind of secretly, the kind of a spiritual coming or whatever, uh, that doesn't uh, float uh, in my opinion. If you're a dispensationalist, you say he sits down in the temple, but there's a problem because if you go to Jerusalem today, where's the temple? It's gone, right? Jesus predicted that it's gone. Not one stone will be left upon another. So if you're a dispensationalist, you would say, well, then what's going to have to happen is that the temple is going to have to be uh, rebuilt sometime in the future. The problem that I have with that uh, is twofold. First, because this takes away from the imminence of Christ's return. Because in this particular view, Christ can't return because the temple hasn't been rebuilt. So however long it takes to to build a temple, right, which is probably a lengthy building process, then Christ couldn't return at least for that long. And uh, so that's one particular uh, problem with that. Any, uh, Any interpretation that necessarily delays the return of Christ seems to be somewhat uh, dangerous. And secondly, this is interesting, Paul doesn't use the word temple in any of his letters to refer to the Jerusalem temple. What does he use the word temple most often to refer to? Us, the church, right? 
The church is the temple uh, of God. And so you, you see Paul doesn't use the word temple in this very, very physical, literal sort of sense. He uses it figuratively. He uses it metaphorically. He uses it spiritually to refer to uh, the church. And uh, so that's the second uh, sort of weakness of the dispensational view. Others see the temple as a reference to the church because that's the way that Paul tends to use it. And so Paul ties this to a rebellion. He says there's going to be a rebellion. That word is apostasia. What does that sound like? Apostasy. And so uh, if that's the particular view and you're a a futurist, you think that this is something that's going to occur in the future, then there would probably be some sort of mass apostasy in Christianity and, uh, and that this person maybe is a major figure within the church uh, somehow. So those are the options, that this is a first century temple, this is a future temple, or this is just figurative, metaphorical sort of language. But that's a, a question that you have to answer if you're going to understand this text. The second question that you have to answer, who is the one who restrains? It says that uh, there is one who is restraining the, the, the mystery of lawlessness. And so if you're a preterist, you think that the one who restrains is the apostles in general, or maybe Peter or Paul in particular. And so until Peter or Paul are taken out of the way, then, uh, then the mystery is not going to be revealed. If you're a dispensational or dispensationalist, then uh, you would say that the church is that which restrains, which is why, according to dispensational theology, there is a pre-tribulational rapture. We'll talk about that in a uh, few weeks, whether or not that's actually what the Bible uh, teaches. But that's the reason that there has to be a pre-tribulational rapture is uh, because the church is that which restrains the mystery of lawlessness. And so when the church is taken away, then all of a sudden the mystery uh, or the man of lawlessness can be uh, revealed. Others say that it's the Holy Spirit. Again, if you're dispensational, you would say the way that when the church is taken out, since the Holy Spirit indwells the church, that the Holy Spirit is taken away, and so he's the one who restrains. The problem that I see with that is that just because you take the church away doesn't mean that you take away the omnipresent Spirit of God. And, uh, and so he is omnipresent regardless of whether or not the church is here or whatever it might be. So anyway, there's a lot of different views out there, but you have to uh, answer that question as well, whether you're a preterist, a dispensational, futurist, whatever uh, it might be. Um, two things to note here. I want you to note, uh, number one, the supernatural powers that it says. It says false signs and wonders. And we're going to notice as we get to the book of Revelation, we talk about the beast. That corresponds. That's one of the things that we'll see in the beast. And, uh, and then also notice that he's been granted the activity of Satan. He's been granted power by Satan. You'll see the beast is granted power by the dragon. The other thing I want you to to notice is the already but not yet sort of language here. The lawless one hasn't been revealed, but the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. Okay, let's move on to the beast in Revelation 13. I'm sorry, we're going to start with Daniel. Daniel 7, 1 through 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. Uh, as he lay in his bed, then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night to behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, I, uh, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now Daniel's vision is of four historically successive empires. If you compare Daniel 7 with Daniel 2, we know that the lion represents Babylon, the bear represents uh, uh, Medo-Persia, the leopard represents Greece, and the indescribable fourth beast represents Rome. So the beast in Daniel represents the Roman Empire and the emperor. I want to hold that in mind. Notice he comes from the sea. Notice that um, he uh, has ten horns. Notice some of these elements. Hold those in your mind as we get to Revelation 13, 1 through 8. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne uh, and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So notice, he too is rising out of the sea. Similar imagery of Daniel. We've talked about this before, but in ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, uh, the sea is chaos. They don't have swimming pools. They don't go for a vacation at the beach. The beach is a place of chaos. It's a place of dismay. It's a place of evil. It's unpredictable. It's a sign. So you notice uh, in, uh, when, when God creates the world, he takes the, uh, the sea and he separates it from the land. And then what does he do? He orders the land. He forms it. In other words, the sea is kind of this formless sort of thing. God is a God of order. So the sea is opposed to God in a, in a sense, at least in terms of the, uh, the imagery there. And you'll notice as you continue on in the book of Revelation, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. It doesn't exist as a sign that there is no chaos. That doesn't mean that there's no water or something like that. Again, this is a symbolism. This is imagery. So you get the idea already that this character is shady. He's coming out of the sea. All right. And pirates can't be trusted. That's kind of the idea there. And if that wasn't clear enough that this guy is shady, he's got these blasphemous names on his head. Like Post Malone, he's all tatted up with these blasphemous sort of names all over the place. And he's like a leopard. He's like a bear. He's like a lion. And he's got ten horns. This is the exact way that Daniel speaks of the beast. And what's interesting of the four beasts in Daniel, four different beasts, are now combined into one main beast, all right, like transformers or something like that. They've all kind of combined together to form this one beast. He has the combined power and authority of them all. You thought that Rome was bad. You thought that Persia was bad. You thought that Greece was bad. 
man, this beast is going to be worse than all of them. And he's got this mortal wound to the head that seemed to get better. We've talked about this already a little bit. This could refer to the, uh, what's called the Nero Redivivus myth, that uh, the idea that uh, after Nero had died, there was this myth that he had come back to life or that he never really died or something like that. Or it could refer to the ongoing lineage of evil emperors. The Roman Empire was kind of like Hydra, not uh, Captain America's enemy, but uh, the, the Greek mythological character. You cut off one head and another head springs up. And so you think you've killed the beast and then another beast comes up and another beast. That could be the imagery there. The empire looks as though it's collapsed when Nero dies, but it springs to life again. And then notice the 42 months. We've talked about this, the symbolism there uh, as well. Three and a half years or 1260 days. You'll see that uh, throughout Scripture, not only in the book of Revelation, but in a lot of uh, other passages in in Daniel and Ezekiel and and so forth that that has symbolic uh, significance. It also has historical significance. What's really interesting is if you uh, look at it historically and you look at the Neronic persecution, how long did Nero persecute the church? He persecuted the church from November of 64, not 1964, I almost said that, November of 64 to early June of 68. That's just about 42 months exactly. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's Revelation 13. Let's move on to verses 11 through 18. Skip a couple of verses just for the sake of time. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. So you see a second beast who's in cahoots with the first, and he, uh, we talked again about anti, meaning not merely against, but also in the place of. Notice that's what's happened here. He appears like a lamb. He's got these two horns, but uh, he speaks like a dragon. He's the satanic parody of Christ. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And then it talks about the mark of the beasts. Now, what's really interesting that uh, you may or may not know, historically, slaves in the Roman Empire would be branded. They would be marked, and they would receive a mark either on the hand or on the forehead. But notice here that it says both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free will be marked. This is not a physical slavery. This is a spiritual slavery. So it's not just for slaves, it's for all of mankind. Anyone who worships the beast is marked. That's the imagery there, though. It's not some weird sort of strange thing. It's just the imagery of slavery. That's what the symbolism of this mark of the beast is intending to say. And so, again, I have actually known people who have avoided getting a library card 
or avoided getting a driver's license because they're afraid if you hold a black light up to it, that it's going to show 666. And that's the mark of the beast. And let me say very clearly, you can't accidentally receive the mark of the beast. Just like you can't fall in a pool and accidentally be baptized or something like that. It doesn't work like that. The mark of the beast is a reference to worship. And uh, so you can't accidentally do it. So go and get a library card or driver's license or whatever it might be. And it says also, as a result of this, there's no buying or selling. Again, the Roman Empire uh, instituted this policy in the first century. They persecuted the early church not only by putting them to death or whatever it might be, but also by squeezing them economically. By the way, does not this exist in every culture throughout the history of the world? Today, if someone doesn't agree with your political or social uh, viewpoint, what do they do? They blacklist you, right? They boycott you, whatever it might be. So economic pressure has always been in a, uh, a tool of the state to, uh, uh, to keep people uh, in line. And then let's look at uh, Revelation 17, 8. That's uh, another reference to the beast here. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So you have this language, was and is not and is to come. That could be a reference back to the reality that he kind of keeps coming like a diabolical game of whack-a-mole. You hit one beast, another pops up. You hit one beast, another one uh, pops up. But you can also read this in light of Revelation 1-4. I think that's in your notes. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Listen to this language. Who is and who was and who is to come. All right, so this beast is using the same sort of language. It's a, again, it's a parody of Christ. Not only is he against Christ, but he puts himself forward in the place of Christ. And then lastly, Revelation 20, 9 through 10, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So spoiler alert, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet all lose. In other words, this isn't some sort of cosmic cliffhanger or something like that. So with all that in mind, you have these images. You have the, the references in First and Second John of Antichrist. You have the reference in Second Thessalonians of a man of lawlessness. And you have these multiple references of a beast, in, uh, in, or at least multiple beasts, in Revelation uh, 13 and 17 and 20 uh, and so forth. And so who is this beast? Who is this Antichrist? Who is this man of lawlessness? I want to say this with a, a whole lot of trepidation because, again, if you ask a, a, a hundred scholars, there's going to be 99 different answers in regards to uh, who this uh, person is. I think that the beast in Revelation refers to the Roman Empire in general and to Nero in particular, but it also anticipates other beasts who would arise with the same beastly tendencies to persecute and oppress the church, oppress the church, and perhaps even a final beast that is yet to come. So my answer has kind of past, present, and future dimensions to uh, discuss. This is overly simplistic. Please don't take this as me being literal, but in my mind, it helps me to kind of think about it like this. The past reference is Nero. The present reference is these sort of ongoing antichrist, and the future reference is a man of lawlessness. So past beast, present antichrist, future man of 
lawlessness. Let me talk about why I think Nero is the past, and then, uh, and then we will uh, do briefly the present and future, and then we'll, we'll take some questions. We might uh, run out of time. Why I think Nero is the primary image of the beast in Revelation. Eight reasons. Number one, he fits the character. Nero was known for radical violence and debauchery. He murdered his family members that we know of. He murdered his parents, his brother, his wife, and his aunt. Uh, The way that he murdered his pregnant wife was by kicking her uh, to death. He devised a game whereby he would dress up like an animal and then have uh, people bound to stakes, and then he would attack their genitals in the Colosseum or the Circus Maximus. He was castrated and quote-unquote married a boy, or he, or sorry, he, he wasn't castrated. He castrated the boy and then married him. Previous emperors would, uh, would be worshipped after their deaths, but Nero actually enforced it during his lifetime. So he was antichrist in both senses. He opposed Christ in his church, and he also exalted himself in the place of Christ. So he certainly fits the character sort of descriptions of the beast. The second one, 666, we talked about that before. You add up the letters in Nero Caesar, you get 666. There's also a variant spelling, another way that you can spell Nero Caesar. You do that and you get 616. That's also a variant that you see in textual manuscripts, biblical manuscripts. Some of them say 666, some of them say 616. There's also the Nero Redivivus myth that we talked about in previous weeks, that, uh, that he stabbed himself in the throat with the sword. That's how he uh, killed himself. He has a mortal wound to the head. And yet there was this myth throughout the Roman Empire that he had uh, survived or come back to life. Four, uh, the seven heads of the beast. Revelation later says that the seven heads are seven mountains, which is a reference to Rome, which is the city founded on seven hills or seven mountains. It's like if I saw, I, I said, I saw a big apple. What would that be referring to? New York. If I said, I saw a city of brotherly love. If I said I saw a city of bayous and industrial plants and it smells like sulfur, that's my hometown, Houston, right? So, Revelation 17.10 is very clear on that. Um, By the way, Nero was the sixth emperor. You have Julius, then Augustus, then Tiberius, then Caligula, then Claudius, and then Nero. What's interesting, Revelation 17, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the sixth. The other has not yet come. Notice here, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Who succeeded Nero on the throne? An emperor named Galba. How long did he last? It says he must come, oh, he must remain only a little a while. He was only an emperor for six or seven months. So that's another reason that I think that this is referring to uh, Nero. Another reason, he was called the beast by his enemies. In fact, that was a nickname for him, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson or something like that. Remember, he has this fun party game that he would do, fun for him, not fun for anybody else, where he would dress up like a beast, like an animal, and go and attack uh, people. Uh, Apollonius of Tyana says, In my travels, which have been wider than ever man yet accomplished, I have seen many, many wild beasts of Arabia and India, but this beast, uh, talking about Nero, that is commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads he has, nor if it be crooked of claw and armed with horrible fangs and of wild beasts, you cannot say that they were ever known to eat their own mother, but Nero has gorged himself on this diet. So he was called the beast. Number six, it's clear in Daniel's vision that the beast is the Roman empire or emperor. So it stands to reason that if Daniel uses the term that way, then maybe John is as well. Number seven, the beast would persecute the church for 42 months. And that's how long Nero's persecution lasted. And number eight, the nature of the book is not first and foremost to reveal the future. We talked about uh, the the word uh, 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 apocalyptic 
means to unveil, to uncover. It unveils the, the future, but it also unveils God's heavenly perspective on the present. And so for the first century church that is experiencing persecution, that has gone through periods, uh, birth pains of persecution, this uh, would be particularly comforting for, for them to see God's divine perspective on Nero and his persecution or Domitian and his later persecution that's going to come up um, uh, a few years later. And, uh, and so I think that the primary historical reference is to Nero, but I also think that there's a sense in which the church should expect persecution from myriad other beasts who rise throughout uh, history. In other words, futurists think this is only referring to some end-time person. Preterists think that this is only referring to the events of the first century. I think it's not an either-or. I think it's actually a both-and. So there's a present dimension as well. We're going to go through this really quickly. Um, the spirit of Antichrist, the power of the beast, reappears throughout history. I think there is a sense, certainly within First uh, John's usage of the term Antichrist, there's a sense in which the emperor Domitian, uh, a later emperor, Mao Zedong, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, in a sense there are periods where you could say the Roman Catholic Church was so infiltrated. Uh, you could say Arianism, Pelagianism, on and on. You could go, in a sense, they are all antichrist. They're all beasts that rise up and persecute God's church. All are antichrist, in a sense, and it's right and good for the church to think maybe this will be the final one, and not really knowing if it's going to be the final one or if there's going to be another or another. Will there be another? I don't know. I think so, personally, but I don't want to be too overly dogmatic on that. D.A. Carson, who uh, is... Um, a, a theologian that I greatly uh, admire. He reads what, 500 books a year, something like that. He says, the antichrists that function in our culture today point to an ultimate antichrist who comes before the end. I think that's the ultimate man of lawlessness that Paul anticipates. As all the other antichrists before him, he will oppose Christ, but he will also exalt himself in the place of Christ. And as the beast of revelation, he will oppress and deceive the church. So I think there is a future antichrist that is yet to come, who will kind of mirror what Nero mirrored in the, or, or uh, acted out in the first century. Uh, the one thing that makes me nervous about my view, and then I'll have uh, Zach, you can go ahead and make your way uh, up here. The one thing that makes me nervous about this view is because it does delay Christ's return to some degree, and that makes me super nervous because it says, until this future Antichrist comes, Jesus can't return. So I am entirely comfortable by saying I might be wrong, and one of the previous beasts that we've seen throughout history might be the one that is the final one, and Jesus could return. That's our hope, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. What questions do we have? All right. Uh, not very many questions, so we'll just do a few, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm going to go with it being good. Uh, okay, <clears throat> so a few things. First of all, uh, let, let me just address one that's not really a question. Uh, someone sent in four texts saying how fast they thought the temple could be rebuilt. Uh, that's not a question, so I don't know how to answer that, but I'll, I'll give a few thoughts on that. That is not relevant to what we're, we're talking about with uh, the temple and Christ coming back and these kind of things. Why? Because that would mean Christ couldn't have come back for the last 2,000 years. Okay? If we're waiting for a literal temple to be rebuilt, which, by the way, the Muslim nations around Israel would nuke them instantly, and most Jews in Israel are atheistic or agnostic, so it's not like they're going to support that building project. But uh, that's not relevant to what we're talking about. If we're saying Christ can't come back until there's a literal third temple built on the dome, you know, where the dome of the rock is now in Israel, that means Christ can't come back today. 
and he can't come back tomorrow, and he can't come back the next day. He can't come back until that happens. And so I think that denies all the passages where we're told to be ready that he could come at, uh, at any time. And so if you have a question about that, feel free to email us. I didn't know how to respond to, uh, to that, uh, but uh, we would love to answer that question if you have it. Okay, questions. Maybe a digression, but it is said that dispensationalism was propagated after the Balfour Declaration, the Balfour Agreement, to propagate support for the nation of Israel amongst Christians, and thus was pushed to seminaries, churches, and Christian academia. Any thoughts on the origin of dispensationalism? Okay. It's kind of a technical question, so I'll, uh, I'll uh, address it a different way. Dispensationalism does not start in 1948 with the establishment of the nation of Israel. Okay. So dispensationalism, out of 2,000 years of church history, comes up in the mid-1800s, okay, and around 1850-ish, and it comes from a guy named John Nelson Darby. You might have heard that name before. He was an English guy, and uh, the movement spread to other English-speaking countries. So dispensationalism is only popular in the UK, in the US, and in, like, Australia, only in English-speaking countries. It's not popular anywhere else. And so the movement of dispensationalism happened and became popular in the US uh, before 1948. Now, I was at a uh, conference one time where a, a graduate student read a proposition, which I thought was a fascinating topic, which was stating that it was actually dispensationalism that was one of the reasons that caused America to support the state of Israel. So I think it's the other way around. I don't think that it's, we need to support the, the nation of Israel, so let's push dispensationalism. I think because dispensationalism was already popular in the United States by then, that is one of the reasons why so many Americans felt that there was this need to support the nation of Israel. Now, I think you can support the nation of Israel politically if you want to. I don't think you can make a biblical case for modern-day Israel being that because the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the new Israel. And those linked to Jesus, the church, are the new Israel. And the boundaries modern-day Israel has today are not the boundaries that it has in the Old Testament. And there's a promise that Israel won't have any enemies, and they're surrounded by their enemies. And so I don't think that that works. But I do think that dispensationalism led to support for Israel, uh, not the other way around. Any thoughts on that? I didn't know if that was... Yeah, so uh, if you think about it historically, um, you may or may not know this, but the, the, the bastions of uh, theological education that were, um, so most of our, like Ivy League schools, most of those were originally Christian institutions. And so Yale and Princeton and Harvard and all those kind of things originally had uh, very religious uh, Christian sort of uh, uh, starts. And, uh, and so if you look at the bastion of dispensational theology, when is DTS? Uh, again, that's my alma mater, so I'm not trying to, to throw stones at it or anything like that. When does that come about? It's the, like the 1920s. And, uh, and so by then, though, there is already this growing consensus of dispensational theology because one of the things that you'll see in like Presbyterianism and in a lot of the mainline denominations is there is this long, lengthy process of being prepared for ministry. And that was not the case in these original sort of biblical prophecy sort of things. You would go and you would hear this, uh, this preaching you would, in, in light of revivalism, and then you would decide, you got saved, I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel. You didn't know anything, you hadn't been trained, you hadn't been equipped, you hadn't been discipled, but you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. Now there's a sense in which there's a, there's a good aspect of that, but there's also a bad aspect of that because it's, it's, it's uh, kind of promulgating uh, theology that maybe the church has never held. And so you actually see that spread much faster than orthodox theology, or I'm not saying that dispensationalism is not orthodox, or uh, that, that's a different sort of issue. But uh, you see it spread a lot faster because it doesn't have that same sort of intense training process, uh, at least until the 1920s. 
All right, one more, and then we will, uh, we will skedaddle into the uh, main service. I have a lot of friends who are very passionate in their thoughts on who the Antichrist or the beast is. What's the best way to engage with these people in order to get them to consider a more biblical view? So I think that's a great question. It's a good pastoral question. Uh, I think what you have to do is you have to, I think it goes back to how we interpret the Bible. For some reason, you take the average Christian and the way they read Revelation is completely different than the way they read other parts of the Bible. Now, I want it to be a little bit different because the genre is different, but it, it becomes too different than the way we would read any other piece of literature. I think the most powerful thing you can encourage and talk to somebody about is to say, would that interpretation have made sense to the original audience? Okay? Uh, a lesson we did a long time ago that I encourage you to listen to is who determines the meaning of a text? Is it the reader? Is it the text itself? Is it the author? And one of the things that we made a case for was that the author determines the meaning of the text. You never get a text without an author. So if you want to know what the text means, you always have to be asking yourself, what is the author trying to tell me? If you want to know what the Constitution says, don't think to yourself, what does this mean to me? That's a really terrible way to get a bunch of weird laws. Instead, read other books written by the Founding Fathers uh, and try to figure out what they mean by those terms and what they mean by rights and these kind of things, that you have to understand what the text means to its original audience and then find implications for today. What do they originally mean by the Second Amendment and then how does that play into the gun debate today, whatever it might be? I think the same thing is true with the Bible. You have to ask yourself, what would have originally made sense to the original audience and other periods in church history, because God wrote his Bible for all of us, and then say, okay, what does that look like today? People that typically have a very specific view on who it is, it's Obama, it's Trump, it's Putin, it's whatever. How would that encourage John's audience? Dear churches, stay faithful because a beast is coming 2,000 years from now and you're actually in no danger at all and just keep doing what you're doing. That doesn't make any sense. It has to make sense for them first and then it makes sense for us today. So I think we have a tendency to always interpret the Bible just from our perspective and when we think of traditional, we just think of our parents' church. No, 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 I need you to think much older by traditional. 2,000 years of church history, what has the church thought that this meant? But those are a few thoughts. I mean, I, I would just add, you know, probably don't start there. And so there, there are bigger fish to fry than eschatological theories and that kind of stuff. And so I would start with, uh, with just general reading of Scripture and, uh, and then just to show that person that you love them. And so there is something where if someone knows that you love them and someone knows that you're orthodox in all other areas, then they're going to be uh, willing, more willing to listen to you when it comes to a different view of eschatology or something like that. And, uh, and so to be patient, to be kind, to recognize at the end of the day that uh, dispensationalists or uh, historicists or idealists or whatever it might be, uh, these are not uh, sort of, you know, variant heterodox, heretical sort of views. They're just different ways of approaching the subject. And so we can all be, uh, be brothers in that. And so I think not having, not reducing things down to kind of Twitter conversations where you're just yelling at each other, I think would be helpful. That's it. That's all we had. Great. Which means the lesson was either excellent or it was not. That's the two options when there's no questions. So That's true. I think it was the first. We'll Want me to pray? Sure. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you through Christ and by the Spirit and ask for grace. I pray that uh, you would bring a sense of humility to our hearts on this issue. Some of us hold views probably too tightly on something the Bible has not explicitly said. Other of us don't hold to uh, certain views tightly enough that the Bible has said. So I just pray for a greater unity, a greater clarity. Uh, most importantly, I pray that we would not be led astray. 
it seems like whatever is happening with these antichrist figures, it's not something that's obvious. It's not something where every Christian's just going to see it and know it and just stay away from it. That's why we have to be warned that it's subtle. Uh, it's something that we're not going to see coming. It's, uh, it's that false teaching that creeps up within the church. Would you protect us from false teaching? Because false teaching doesn't honor you. If we are commanded to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're thinking of you wrongly, we're thinking of things unbiblically, that ultimately doesn't honor you. So would you help us think biblically? Help us link our theology with our love for you. In Christ's name, amen.